In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit sift.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Dan's fierce beard is back on the program. Hallelujah. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. How are you? I, I am great. It is, you are our second repeat guest. We had Jimmy from Seon. He was our first repeat guest. And he came on to tell us that they had closed a hundred, almost a hundred million dollar funding round. So I don't know, maybe you're going to get a hundred million dollar bonus or something in your future. That's, <laughs> that's the bar is set already at a hundred million. Nice. So, it so might be hard it might it might be hard getting me back on this program if I someone would give me <laughs> wow wow shots fired shots <laughs> fired we're only forty three well, seconds in I, I guess there is internet access in the Caribbean so yeah I was gonna say I thought we were friends Dan I, I thought we were friends so this is Dan Woods from F five he is back on the program ex FBI ex CIA ex all kinds of really scary three letter acronyms. Um, glad that that I can only see him through the computer screen, and and that he's he's not uh, he's not coming after me. I'm much better to talk to him than to have him coming after you. So, Dan, I'll let everyone get a refresher of um, who you are, where you where you're representing, and then we'll we'll jump right in. All right, sounds good. So, uh, as Bradley said, I'm the, uh, I don't know if you said this or not. I'm the global head of intelligence at F5. Um, what that means is I work with a team of data scientists and engineers and analysts who kind of pour over the billions of transactions that flow through the uh, the bot defense infrastructure at F5 every day. And we're looking for you know new attack tools, uh, new attacks, new monetization schemes. And we just we call all the intelligence we can out of those two billion transactions and then we share that. Uh, um, with our customers and prospective customers at, you know, conferences and trade shows and uh, on activities such as this one. Awesome. We are so excited to have you back on the program. Just a wealth of knowledge and incredible experiences. And that's why we, we uh, asked you back because one episode was definitely not enough to, to cover everything. So, Let's, uh, let's keep the conversation rolling. I, I want to hear some more of your interesting stories. We, we spoke a little bit before we jumped on here, some really, really crazy uh, uh, stories. And particularly, we wanted to, I think, dive in a little bit more to one thing that we kind of glossed over last time. We, we spoke about the need to have your fraud team on the same page with, with other teams. And you'd kind of mentioned one particular experience that you had um, where that wasn't the case. And I think we can dive, we could start off by diving into that one a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I was at a large, uh, international retailer briefing the, uh, the CISO and, uh, what we, what we went there to tell him is that, uh, we found what appears to be a lot of manual attacks. Uh, our, you know, our bot prevention took care of the automated attacks and what's left is a bunch of manual attacks. And, uh, you know, we wanted to get in front of this organization's fraud team so that we could share those insights with the fraud team. And when I asked for that introduction, um, he, he shocked me. He just looked me right in the eye and he said, fuck fraud. And I was floored. Like, well, like We're going to make a T-shirt with that, I think. I, I, think there's, <laughs> I see some new Merchant Fraud Journal merchandise coming down. <laughs> well, I was I was shaken, really taken aback. I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, look, all they're doing is scrambling to find budget. They're trying to, you know, find their place after you, you know, you guys mitigated all the automated traffic. They're running out of things to do. And uh, it's just they become really difficult to work with. And I just thought, well, what a shame. You know, here we are coming to them with with valuable insights that the fraud team uh, would benefit from. And the, the CISO just said, no, I'm not, not going to make the introduction. 
Um, and then, of course, the fraud continued for, for a long time and probably continues today because we never were able to overcome that obstacle. Uh, but as another example of kind of the other end of the spectrum, I was at a, another large retailer, uh, more North American focused. And uh, I same example, I went to the CISO and I said, look, we've got examples of some manual attacks taking place. I'd love to get this in front of your fraud team. And he just said, hold on, stop talking. He reached over, picked up his phone, made a call. And then six or seven people from the fraud team walked in a few minutes later. So, you know, the latter is obviously uh, the, 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 the ideal uh, situation. You want a really good working relationship, not just between fraud and security, but um, including the, you know, the application teams and the business units. Everybody needs to be on, on the same page and, you know, working for the same team. But what I found is that is surprisingly uh, rare. In fact, so rare that um, oftentimes people ask me, you know, like here's a government program that threw, you know, $200 million at cybersecurity. Is that enough? Uh, is the tech available? What's the state of AI and ML? Is that going to help? Those sorts of things. And I say, look, all those things could be perfect. They could be sufficient tech, sufficient budget. But the real cancer in these organizations is the inability for, for people to work together like they should. Uh, and I've seen examples of uh, both really, really badly run organizations and really, really well run organizations. Yeah, so last time we, we dove into that, so I don't necessarily want to go down that path. Again, I encourage everyone, if you haven't listened to that first episode, definitely, definitely want to check that out. I'm curious in this conversation, take it a different angle. If I'm on the fraud team at one of these, I will call them dysfunctional organizations, what can I do to try and move the needle on the culture try to prove my value. Obviously, I don't think that that's necessary. Personally, I don't think right. that you should have to do that. But if that's the reality that you're facing right now, what are some of the things that you've seen happen where people can can get buy-in where there wasn't before? Yeah, sometimes I feel like the F5 success causes some of the friction because, you know, prior to going in line and deploying our client side signals and identifying how much of the, you know, the traffic at login or, you know, add to cart or, you know, create account or add credit card, how much of that is actually bots, um, you know, prior to us doing that, uh, security was unaware how much of it was was bots. Fraud was full of work and, and interesting transactions to sift through looking for uh, fraud. But then when we go in and we, we identify all of this malicious traffic and then we take mitigating action on it, security is going around, you know, claiming success. And typically the, the, the advocate inside security who who brought in F5 spot defense and within months, that person is promoted. And then fraud is sitting there saying, all that traffic that was, you know, kind of, it was the pond in which we fished. It, it's gone. Um, so I guess to to a fraud person out there, if that happens to you, please do not feel uh, threatened by that at all. That just gives you more time to sh to sift through the transactions that matter and and find uh, find the fraud that continues, which is typically going to be more advanced and more interesting, more interesting fraud. Um, so yeah, I would, I would just say, Hey, you know, um, I, I get it. There's limited budget. And when there's a fraud team of two or verse or 60, and all of a sudden uh, a lot of the traffic dries up, you're wondering, okay, well, what are we supposed to do now? And I'm just saying, trust me, there's plenty of fraud in all organizations just because those transactions dry up doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there isn't other avenues of fraud that you'll be able to find that, that pr prior to that had largely been ignored likely. Right. So it sounds like data is the answer, which we're, we're always excited about here at Merchant Fraud Journal. We're huge data people. Tell me how you go about, how you've seen people go about starting these conversations, though. It, it, I really want to get at, for people who are, who are in this situation right now and they're thinking, I really want to bring this problem to somebody's attention, but I just know no one's going to listen to me. I, I can print out all the, the reams of data that I want and bring it to them. No one's going to listen. What are some of the, the strategies and tactics you've seen from a communication standpoint for how people can present this information effectively to the right people in their organization and be taken seriously? 
Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head, Bradley. It is all about data. And, uh, you know, I've seen lots of organizations struggle to get all the data they need uh, to make informed decisions as to whether or not a transaction is good or bad. And it's because they they don't want to introduce any latency whatsoever to the user experience. Uh, so they, they believe incorrectly that if you collect any client-side signals using JavaScript or an SDK on the, the mobile device, that it's going to introduce latency. And and to some extent, they're correct. You cannot execute JavaScript or execute you know, the SDK and collect signals without introducing some latency. But when those signals are also allowing you to take mitigating action on large amounts of automation that never reach origin, um, then we typically are seeing a net improvement in performance. Um, so I, I would say, you know, if, you, if you're on the fraud team somewhere, uh, and you know you want to make a compelling um, argument to to leadership. I'd say you want to start collecting client side signals. You're you're not going to be able to do it all, looking at logs, uh, you know, or loading um, you know network attributes into spreadsheets. The client side data is king. You know, like just for example, uh, we we look at how uh, how a client does floating point math. We we ask the browser to convert a very large hexadecimal number into decimal. And we've noticed that different browsers, different user agents come up with different answers to that very large floating point math problem because of the way they round. And uh, so if the user agents doing purports to be Chrome, but they're doing floating point math like Firefox, ah, now we know that whoever's behind this transaction is spoofing the user agent. And your legitimate customers have no incentive to spoof the user agent. Um, we also you know, look at how these clients result, uh, render emojis, because just like the floating point math signal, if their user agent says they're edge, but they're rendering emojis like Firefox, we, again, we know they're lying. You can only make these assessments if you're collecting client-side signals. And it is safe to do it. We collect you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of these sorts of signals that bad actors don't know to spoof. And even if they knew uh, that they needed to spoof them, they wouldn't be able to. So um, don't think that you, you could do this all at the network layer. You've, you know, collect those client side signals and add that to your, your data store. And you'll find that uh, they, they're going to provide amazing insights. You know, um, another example that doesn't even require client side signals is um, looking at who logs off. Bad actors log off all the time. I know we want our customers to log off, um, but you know, they don't always. Sometimes they close the browser, close up, you know, the laptop, on, the lid on their laptop, turn off the computer, but they don't always log off. In fact, you know, if you're, if you had really good client-side signals, you could do a session ex extension for, for months, months. So you never even impose the friction of forcing the customer to log back in. But if you look and see which accounts are, are always logging off, and you study the the infrastructure, the device that is that is being used to do that, and then look at other accounts that that same device is attempting to log into. You're going to find fraud. Bad actors log out all the time. They have to to log into the next victim's account. Um, so that is, I think, something your your audience could put to use right away. Just because you don't need client side signals, just got to look at the telemetry and think, all right, which devices always log off, and then which accounts. Are those devices interacting with because almost nine times out of ten when we do that we find malicious uh, manual activity wow that's really really awesome really appreciate that then i've never heard that before and it makes a lot of sense and i'm sure our audience is really going to use that so thank you sure. um so you promised me i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you for some fbi cia stories in here you you said you you had a couple off the top of your head, I believe that uh, you were able to, I don't know how many you can or can't share, but I, I definitely. Uh, there there are some, but you know, they don't necessarily push the merchant fraud uh, button, but your audience might find them interesting. Like um, for example, uh, and I feel comfortable talking about this because it's been more than 25 years uh, since this happened. But uh, uh, I was um, in the field, and this is when I was working uh, for an uh, organization in the agency that uh, had a device that had to be pointed in the sky at a specific location at a specific time in order to communicate with a bird uh, in, in the air. 
And, you know, the bird's moving, the earth is spinning, uh, uh, time zones are changing. Um, everything needs to be just right. And, you know, the, the asset has a four minute window to point this device in the right direction uh, at the right time. Otherwise, the op is dead. So we, we trained the asset how to use the device, where to point it, what buttons to push, and exactly when he needed to do it. And then he disappears. He leaves the safe house. And now I'm just talking with the local service. And the local service and I were, were just kind of almost celebra celebrating because we it's going to be a successful operation. Famous and last then, words. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then I'm also going to put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and then somehow it came up. And frankly, this is on this is on me as the tech ops officer. I should have known this, and and I and I didn't. But um, this is the day that the of the country was going to change their clocks um, to adjust for you know the time zone. And uh, and I thought that 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 ruins the op. If you change your clocks, and this guy's good, then tomorrow going to use this device, he's going to be an hour off. The device is hard coded. The satellite's been programmed. Everything is ready to go. If this op is dead because you're going to change your clocks, and the guy I'm, I'm I'm talking to just kind of looks at me and he he reaches over to the phone and he dials and he picks up and I hear him talking in the foreign language for like 30 seconds and then he hangs up the phone. He looks at me. He goes, "We will not be changing our clocks this year." Wow! And I thought, wow! <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? To have that much power in a country where you could just say we're not changing our clocks after a 30 second phone call. Wow. Yeah. So that the is... op was success. The op was a success. And every and the entire country was off an hour for the rest of the year, I guess. <laughs> the rest of the year. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. That yeah. is that is definitely a story. That is yeah, that's one example. So, well, so I, I have a, I have another one that is more relatable to merchant fraud, um, but this isn't an FBI and CIA thing. This okay. is a, this is an F5 one. Um, but we, I, we are collecting these client-side signals. We have the ability to replay the user's interaction with the protected application. Like if it's on login, we see them entering their username and the password. We don't collect the password, of course. In many organizations, we do collect the username. But we're able to see timing between, you know, keystrokes and some key values, depending upon whether or not they, it, it, it uh, amounts to any PII, because we don't collect PII. Um, and uh, when we replayed this one, this person was on the page for 45 minutes, and it was an ad credit card page. So when we replayed the user interaction, we saw what he was doing was going to the ad credit card. He put in the full six-digit card number. He put in the expiration date, put in the name. And then for the, the three-digit CVV, he was actually copying and pasting different CVV values into it. Oh, and this particular app was designed once all the fields were filled out. You didn't have to click submit. There was this XHR post that would just automatically check to make sure that the CVV credit card and expiration date that that trio were valid. So uh, he was just doing carding on this person on this one business's ad credit card application. Wow. But what was the interesting thing is that he was pasting the the, the three, the three, the CVV. And, and, uh, and by the way, this is another client size signal that's uh, important. We, we've noticed uh, bad actors don't utilize their full screen. Uh, the browser does not utilize their full screen hmm. where your, your customers typically do. Typically, the browser is maximized and, you know, they're using uh, the whole screen. Bad actors don't because oftentimes there's maybe a terminal window open. There's a spreadsheet open, a text. There's something else open hmm. that is helping them facilitate their, their fraud. And in this case, what we believe is that the bad actor had a bunch of CVVs that for some reason had, he thought, had a higher chance of being valid CVVs rather than just kind of going zero, zero, zero to nine, mm -hmm. nine, nine in, in a row. Um, and think about it, control C, control V, that's, you know, four uh, keystrokes. And then you still have alt tab to switch between the text, you know, the text and the uh, browser. So you'd think just typing the three would be faster. Um, but each time you, you type in a three, the CVV is different. So it's three different characters. And we found that fraudsters, they want to be very efficient. They're very, very fast. 
And uh, even though Control-C and Control-V and Alt-Tab are more uh, character, more keystrokes, they're the same keystrokes right, over, over and over and over and over, and over, over again. again. Yeah. So we believe that's why this particular actor opted to, uh, to paste them into the, into the CBB field. And by the way, that's another signal that uh, your, your audience could put to use right away without collecting client-side signals. Um, how quickly does a user navigate a workflow? Um, you know, if, if I were to log into my retail account right now and uh, buy something, I could do that pretty quickly. But if I wanted to add a credit card to my profile, I probably am going to have to look for the profile button, maybe, and maybe look for the add credit card button because I don't add a credit card every day. I, I do it you know, when I open the account. I do it when I get a new credit card. It's rare. Bad actors add credit cards hundreds of times per day. They navigate that workflow lightning fast. So just at origin, if you look at the logs and, and just do some analysis on timing, which of these clients, which of these users are just navigating that workflow lightning fast? Because whoever that is, they, they're either one heck of a loyal customer um, or they're engaged in some sort of malicious activity. And I'm telling you, these sorts of signals, I'm not saying that, you know, block the transaction because that person is clearly navigating too fast. I'm saying these like uh, screen utilization, how fast are they navigating? How often do they log off? These are three of dozens and dozens that you could you could collect. And then you look at the totality of those signals and make make an informed decision on, as to whether or not. And then, of course, uh, the organizations have access to signals that we we don't at, at F5. You know, we have our client side signals and telemetry, but you know we don't have access to the chargebacks. You know, and right. and that's something that a fraud analyst would have access to. Um, so it's you know you're you're right earlier when you said it's all about the data, and it, and it is. Um, but I have this slide I show in a lot of my presentations. Uh, they call it my my team calls it my hot dog slide because. <laughs> It's a picture of a hot dog on a bun, and then it's got roughly a gallon of mustard on it, and it's just poured over all the edges. And the, the caption is, more is not always better. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I can't think of a better visual to illustrate that more is not always better. So, you know, I would caution your audience to, to be weary of the, the vendors who say, we've got 15,000 signals and or 20,000 or even 5,000 because it doesn't really matter how many signals you have. What matters is the quality of those signals. Um, I could do a heck of a lot more with a, a half a dozen high quality floating point math or emoji signals than I can with thousands of plugins, fonts and screen size signals. Um, so the quality of signals is what is what really matters. So I have to follow up this story with the most popular or hottest topic right now, I feel like in the industry, which is the interplay between online fraud prevention and the customer experience. And I know this is a, an audio podcast, but Dan can see me and the face I'm making, I think because we've just talked about it so much. Um, but I, I feel like every day we just hear more stories about just how important this is to organizations right now and that the fraud teams are just getting deluged with directives about customer experience. The whole thing is customer. It's it's like you're supposed to be able to do your job without doing your job, right? Like you, you right, have right. to read the tea leaves somehow and yeah. and it's it's becoming increasingly challenging, I think, for people. And that's why we've we've really seen a lot of interest in this. So what what is your take on this? Where do you draw the line? How do you message this internally with your product teams, with with your business teams to say we need this friction, but we can compromise on this friction? What are the the key things that you think should not be sacrificed by the fraud team? And what are some of the things that you see people maybe choosing as their hill to die on that they doesn't really need to be so that that they're misinterpreting the strength of that signal yeah um the way the way we address this at f5 is not surprisingly using client-side signals um, i hate to you know uh, uh, what is it to beat a dead horse or uh, be a broken record <laughs> um but um you know, we're re we are reinforcing 
important information. Yes, that's in this what we're podcast. Doing. I'm, that's re-edi- I'm reiterating a very important point. Um, <laughs> you know what, what's nice about the client side signals is you collect them, and it's the fact that they're being collected is transparent to the to the customer. They have no idea that you're rendering an emoji in memory or that you're asking the browser to do floating point math. They have no idea. Um, so, what, you know, early on, uh, we developed a bunch of signals to identify, you know, bots. Uh, and then we started to identify signals to identify manual attackers. And But, you know, over the last few years, we developed a lot of signals that identify known good customers. Uh, and we, we actually tested this. Um, this, by the way, is a, an offering, a service offering we call authentication intelligence. Use, it uses client-side signals to reduce um, friction and uh, increase security. So uh, the example was we did analysis at one of our customers' sites to identify those customers who were struggling to log in. Some of them, it took multiple attempts to log in. Others, they after multiple attempts, they still uh, weren't able to log in. And we're talking like you know tens of thousands of these people were experiencing uh, friction at login. And I, I suspect at least some fraction of them are going to call customer service. In fact, you hope they call. Otherwise, they're going to move on to a different merchant. But they, they'll, they'll, they call customer service. And those calls, thousands of calls, have a cost associated with them. So we studied all of our signals associated with those struggling uh, customers. And we, we determined with very high confidence that thousands of the people that they were asking, not asking, forcing to log in again, uh, were without a doubt their customer. Uh, we, they, it wasn't a fraudster, it wasn't an imposter, it was their customer. And we're sure of it because uh, that device is the same device we've seen for the last several months uh, that's made several logins successfully, several purchases. Uh, it's doing floating point math and rendering emojis the way it always has. The, the keys are being pressed in the rhythm uh, similar to the way they always have. Everything about the device screams it is the legitimate customer. So there was no reason to even ask them to log in again. So uh, this customer of ours, they decided to take our word for it. We're going to collect these signals and put you know, a, a value, a recommendation in the header that says extend the session. It's, don't do 30 minutes, do seven days. And at the end of the seven days, we might say, no, nope, we're positive. It's still your customer. Do another seven days. Do another seven days. So you know, I do think the future is going to be a, a username and passwordless future. But I think we're going to get there not by one day saying, okay, everybody stop entering usernames and passwords. I think we're going to get there by extending the session longer and longer and longer and longer until eventually, you know, the the user is not asked to enter any username and password ever again. Or maybe the shorter term goal is that they're asked whenever they get a brand new device that has no history um, that, okay, now we want to, you know, spend a couple of uh, weeks watching this person's interaction without any uh, chargebacks or any reported fraud, create a baseline, and then going forward, we'll be able to identify any changes to that baseline. So would you say then that what you're arguing is essentially in the future or now, you should be creating more friction at the start, but have it be kind of a one-off deal as much as possible? No, I would say um, you don't want to create a lot of friction for creating an account. You want you know you want people to be able to create an account quickly, um, but maybe as they do higher and higher risk things, I, you know I don't think it's friction when I go to transfer a large sum of money to an account I've never transferred money to. I don't consider it friction when the bank says. And, you know, asks me for some other information. I, in fact, it gives me a sense of safety and security. Right. If I can just We've send it, I've never authenticated ever again. Uh, no, that's that's a problem. Uh, so I think uh, it should be minimum minimum friction uh, at the beginning, and then you 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 introduce additional client side signals the best you can without any introducing any new friction uh, as they continue to do higher and higher risk transactions. But there are times where okay. This is too high risk of a transaction. Maybe the they're transferring money to a, a person that they've never done that before, or they're maybe buying an expensive object with a gift card. Um, whatever that threshold is, then I think it's okay to to introduce just some friction, as long as it isn't. I always ask this the other day: enter your debit card number. I'm like, are you kidding me? I I don't have that memorized. I, that means I have to go get it out of my wallet and enter my. No, I don't want to do that. Um, but entering my my password that 
That, that's fine. I, I use my password manager. I copy and paste it in there and I'm off to the races. So I don't see in the short term password lists everywhere. Uh, there are still going to be times to use a, a password. There's still going to be times to use 2FA. Um, in fact, maybe a high risk transaction, uh, maybe just ask them to enter in their second factor of authentication. So you're, uh, I see organizations forcing 2FA on all of their customers. That's just unnecessary friction. But there is a place for 2FA, uh, and it's for high-risk transactions when you don't have the signal yet to say with high confidence that it is your customer. So it's really a balance. But I, I think client-side signals plays such an important role. I, I don't know why um, there, there aren't more organizations uh, doing it more aggressively because we've, we've had huge success with our customer. One customer is experiencing tens of millions of dollars in uplift just by us extending the session. So I want to get the original question. I want to get, because I want to make sure we get those actionable kind of items. What, you don't have to give me specifics, but give me categories maybe of things that you think are essential friction uh, what what it's so if we're talking about supply uh, side signals, customer side signals, um, you know what categories? Because obviously they're going to be a bunch. Are there are there certain types? Are are they mathematical? Like you were saying, are they? I don't know. What what would you say are like the ones that you have to have, and then the ones that maybe if you're getting pushback from management that this is too many whether right or wrong but yeah. they're going to make the decision ultimately what are the ones that you would suggest are the first ones to go as well on the other end well i i'd uh, i'd get rid of all captures for one that that's a countermeasure i see all the time and it just infuriates me because all it does is impose friction on legitimate customers and i you're a captcha expert so if you yeah we, we got to <laughs> yeah, check out that first episode if you haven't we we heard all about dan's uh, adventures with the Russian CAPTCHA farms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I would yank all those out first and foremost. Whenever I see CAPTCHAs, I just get frustrating. That's the worst friction because it doesn't work. Um, mandatory 2 of A for everybody, I, I would never do that. That that doesn't work either. I mean, it, it helps with security. It doesn't stop credential stuffing. Um, and here's why, real, real quick. When you, most implementations of 2 of A, you enter in your username and your password, you click next, and then you said, okay, now enter the 2FA code that was just texted to you. You click that and you enter that in, you click next and you log in. Um, that's most implementations because not mo most organizations don't issue a hard token like you know the right. Department of Defense. Um, so if I enter a username and password at one of these 2FA protected logins and I'm told incorrect username and password, and then I put in a different username and password and I'm asked for my 2FA, I know I, I entered the correct username and password because the origin response, the difference in origin response tells me whether or not the username and password were correct. Um, so having a 2FA protected application, I, I, I see people still launching credential stuffing attacks against it because the purpose of credential stuffing is to verify the username and password. Admittedly, they have not yet taken over the account, but they now know they have the correct username and password. And I see ads on this on the dark web all the time that, look, I've got usernames and passwords, uh, you know, thousands of them that are valid. I just need help getting past the 2FA. And then that person partners with somebody who specializes in maybe an OTP bot that gets around uh, uh, the 2FA or maybe um, uh, SS7 compromises, uh, telco insider, somebody who specializes in social engineering, uh, port out, SIM swaps. There's all sorts of ways, uh, phone malware, all sorts of ways that people are getting around that second factor of authentication. So you'll still see the credential stuffing attack against the 2FA protected application. They'll verify all the credentials and they'll partner with somebody to monetize all of that. Um, so 2FA across the board, I'd throw that out. I'd keep it in the arsenal though. 2FA has a, a valid place in the arsenal. And it's for, like what I said before, those high risk transactions. Um, think about it, somebody logs into a retailer account. May, maybe that's not high risk at all. They, they log in. Uh, that's not high risk. They log in. What, what, do they, what if they want to go change their address? Okay, now that's higher risk. What if they order a, a, an expensive item and ship it to a new address? That's higher risk. What if they want to add a new credit card and then use that new credit card to buy an expensive? These are all higher risk, but simply logging in 
I'm not sure that's a higher risk, especially if the PII is uh, protected by, you know, by asterisk, it's anonymized. Um, so I would say closely monitor, the friction should kind of be, kind of trail the, the, the risk level of the transaction. And what should close that gap is client side signals. Try to do it with client side signals first because that is frictionless. And for those new devices where you you just don't have enough of the of a baseline established, then and only then would I start asking for two FA or having them enter in their password a second time. Okay, I, I do want to follow up on the captcha. To my understanding, that was a PayPal invention back way back in, many 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 years ago. What what makes it not effective in the modern day? Because my understanding was it was very effective when it was first implemented. Yeah. As most countermeasures are, they're very effective when they're first invented and deployed, but bad actors, they retool, they evolve. Um, and the reason that CAPTCHAs aren't effective today is because you can just use um, API access into a human click farm and they will solve the CAPTCHAs all day long. And yeah, this is what we talked about during the, the first uh, meet, our first meeting. So yeah, if the audience wants to hear about that, go go listen to that because I, I did, I went to work for a Russian human click farm solving CAPTCHAs. So um, it's just a speed bump for a, a motivated uh, fraudster. Um, they can automate right around it. All right. So I think this is a good good transition into a question that we, we talked on here uh, a little bit off the beaten path. Um, going out to the 40,000 foot view here of the industry as a whole, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on the idea that's being pushed in a lot of trade organizations, a lot of non-fraud prevention circles, that the chargeback guarantee, which is pretty ubiquitous at this point, and most people know, so certain solutions will guarantee your chargebacks um, and pay you if pay you for the, the chargebacks if they tell you to accept it and they uh, the order, and then it turns out to be fraudulent. I've heard this recently used in layman's circles, we'll call it, to, to make the argument that this is essentially a, an insurance product, that fraud prevention, um, the chargeback guarantee specifically, but also fraud prevention kind of more generally, is, is essentially insurance, that you're, you're trying to prevent um, bad things, and when bad things do happen, there's some kind of payback to the, for those things, either internally or externally. And I had never really heard this argument made. And when I heard it, I, it kind of uh, bent my mind a little bit because I can see how you, you might make that argument. And, and the other part being that traditionally insurance companies make money on what's known as floats, meaning for those of you that, that might not be aware, you, you pay your insurance premiums and the insurance company expects a certain percentage are, are never going to use that money. That, that money is just going to be held. So they take that money and they invest it professionally in, in the market or in other financial products or however they, they do it. And so this boomeranged back in the discussion on our industry as, well, this is an insurance company that doesn't even have the benefits of an insurance company, essentially. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. We, we talked about it a little and you, and you said you hadn't really heard about it. So I think that's really good. I'd like to get your first kind of impressions of, of if that argument makes sense to you um, and then why it's not true. Cause I don't think it's true, <laughs> but, why it's not, yeah. but why it's not yeah. true and, and how we as an industry can move forward kind of fighting that narrative that, well, this is, you know, this, you're just insuring things. Yeah. It's theft. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, Bradley, this prior to this call in the few minutes before recording, you and I were talking about this and this is when I learned about it. So, uh, yes, I have an opinion, but it's a, it's a, a rather uninformed opinion on that's, this. That's fine. I give lots of uninformed opinions on this show. <laughs> so I agree that it's like an insurance company, but you think about an insurance company, you know, you, you go and, and uh, maybe you buy insurance uh, for your boat. Um, one thing where, where it's not an insurance company is um, the insurance company isn't responsible for protecting your boat. The insurance company is just responsible for paying you in, in the case of your boat being destroyed, uh, according to the terms of the policy. Um, so this uh, organization you described, 
they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're saying, okay, no, we will tell you whether or not the transaction is good. And when we're wrong, we'll pay you. So if if I'm listening to that pitch, I'm drawn to it. I, I'm thinking, wow, there's really no downside. Unless unless paying them is high, more expensive than uh, the than the chargebacks, but if if it's reasonably priced and they're they're telling me which transactions are are good and trustworthy and which are not, and then the ones where they're wrong, they pay me for that. That seems like a pretty ob- that seems like a no brainer to me. Um, but uh, again, I, you know, I, I've uh, well, yeah. I mean, I I think what blew my mind about this this whole argument is it, is it really just ignores everything that we've kind of been talking about in the last 40 minutes or so, which is, which is that the fraud prevention industry is not just about the end results, right? It's, it's about all of the other things that are going on in terms of customer experience, in terms of wasted marketing spend. There, there are so many other financial factors that go into this. How much money are you spending um, and the chargebacks are really very much at the end. They get the focus because they feel like theft. They're easy to understand for business people. Oh, we sold this sure. or we thought we sold it, but we really didn't. And now we have to give it back. Yeah. yeah. Um, a, a lot, a lot had to happen for there to be a, a charge. Exactly. Back. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and a lot of, a lot of what the industry has done in the last uh, you know, decade or so is really fine tune not just the end result, but all of the processes that go into it, right? And when you bring on a solution like F5, you're you're saving yourself a ton of headache and a ton of of expenditure in a mm-hmm. in an area that you're not qualified to be an expert in. And being able yeah. to to hand that off to an expert organization saves you so much money internally that has nothing to do with the chargebacks. I mean, sure, you're going to get fewer chargebacks, but you're also going to spend a whole lot less money on your fraud prevention to get there and cause a lot less friction. And all all of the things that go into effective fraud prevention in 2022 that an enterprise company that's selling widgets as their bread and butter simply is not equipped to do because it's not what they specialize in. It's it's basic trade economics. Right. And I I think that that is something that I don't feel the industry is pushing back on enough. And it's a narrative that I'm watching um, with some trepidation because it's simply not true and I would hate to see the industry kind of, I don't know if smeared is the right word because they're not trying to, to speak ill about the industry, but just to, to, to be downgraded in the public consciousness as, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, just, uh, these people are just insurance people ultimately. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that certainly, you know, bot prevention and authentication intelligence, those sorts of things are, that are driven by the, the client side signals. We have an incentive at F5 to develop really impressive and, and powerful client side signals. But one retailer um, with a much smaller engineering team that really is focused on developing the website and the native app to make it uh, easy to use. And um, they, that would be a distraction. For them to have to develop all these clients for sure for yeah sure. so which is why I, I i agree that 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 is not a diy project you, you you go to an outside vendor who has been proven now what we're talking about now though is we have uh, this vendor who says look we will tell you which transactions uh, you should approve and which you should not and if we tell you to approve one that um, turns out to be a chargeback, we will pay you for that chargeback. Now, what I don't know, and I'd be very interested in learning is, how do they make the decision whether or not a transaction should be approved or not? Are they they looking at a lot of other signal from other, or my guess is they are. They're looking at a lot of signal from a lot of organizations. Uh, Otherwise, they're going to be wrong more than they're right, and they're gonna lose lose money. They're not gonna be successful, and time will tell. Uh, whether or not this company is going to be successful, or maybe it'll be another few years where and, until we know, yep, okay, this model works. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I just think that um, um, you, you, if it's not, um, it's not a DIY project, but the question is, I don't know that they'll be as successful in, in this area that where F5 has been in bot defense. But I mean, yeah, for our for our bot defense, we're collecting signal from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies so that we could bring to bear to protect one company, you know, the network effect. And maybe this organization is doing the same thing to decide whether or not transactions uh, should be authorized. Yeah, so I definitely think it's it's uh, it's an interesting kind of discussion in the public eye as we move forward. Um, mm -hmm. And I know we talked some of the about this, you know, the future. That's one of my kind of favorite questions to ask at the end. But definitely, as we're as we're moving forward into Web three, um, and and as we discussed, you know, the the transition points are always the dangerous points right mm -hmm. the transition oh, from web one which wasn't commercial or anything like that to web two um was huge but it for everyone fraudsters included and people didn't even know kind of what they were supposed to be looking for much mm -hmm. less be able to stop it right and the fraudsters are generally faster at least at the outset than, than yeah. the response because people have to respond to what they're what they're seeing as we move towards web three, this is where I give my, my every episode plug for my glasses. I'm waiting for my glasses, Tim Cook. I want them. Um, as we get to, to AR and all these, these kinds of things, I, I mean, we just don't know how people are going to exploit them. And so no, the idea that you would be pulling this stuff in-house now and we've talked about this on other episodes and not preparing for the future, right? Because we're going to be, no one knows exactly when it's going to happen, but I would assume within certainly the next decade, if not the next five years, we're going to yeah, start to see a lot of traction commercially with all these new uh, technologies. If you're not building now with those ideas of this is where this is going, you're, you're going to be way behind the curve. And like you said, that is not a DIY or DIY project. Like no. you do not want to be trying to develop an AR sales store and then having like a couple of people on your programming team trying to put some fraud prevention in there, right? You want people that this is what they do with all the expertise that they're bringing to solve these new challenges as quickly as you possibly can. And I just, yeah. when I hear people talking about it as, oh, this is an insurance product. I just, it, it made my head like hurt. I, I didn't know, yeah. I wanted to jump through. I mean, I, again, I know these people mean well, they're not trying to, that's just what they see as a common person. But I think the industry needs to be more proactive in, yeah. in how it's messaging itself. Um, yeah, and I suspect we're going to see a bunch of startups that specialize in transitioning organizations into the you know the augmented reality marketplace because it is not a DIY project. It's not like I mean there are going to be some huge huge you know multi billion dollar companies who just decide to hire a bunch of experts and um, and and do it themselves. Yeah, right. Like I'm but, sure Apple will set up somewhere, but there's only one yeah, app yeah. in the world, right? Like that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I and guess it, I get, yeah, sorry. And there's going to be, there's gonna be more uh, risk because there's going to be a rush. And anytime people are rushing, yep. a yep. lot more mistakes are made. Yep. Um, and it's going to yeah, be so. win this market. We have to win this market. Get out there. Just sell, sell. Don't put friction in. Don't whatever. And it's going to be a, a disaster, right? And when you start yeah. to get into these increasing levels of invasion into people's private information, which people agree to a lot, but the damage that can be caused is just more and more exponential, right? When, when yeah. you get into these types of, of scenarios. And so the blowback in the PR department is just going to be even more expensive. You're going to spend all this money rushing out there to sell, you know, capture market share in these new, um, new channels. And then you're just going to get all of this pushback back from people of like, yeah. well, why didn't you protect me this way? Again, we don't even know what, what what's going to happen. Um, and and uh, for sure. So, Dan, it, it sounds like 
we started off with you talking about going onto a deserted island or a Caribbean island somewhere to be alone. <laughs> and now 50 minutes later, we're talking about Web3 startups. So I, I think there's some synergy there, not to play buzzword bingo with you, but yeah. I mean, you know my email address. We can, uh, we can when, are, when are we setting up our uh, Web3 fraud prevention startup? I want to know. I do the hey, marketing, I'm... you do the tech, and, yeah. and we're, we're there. I, I, I'm interested. We got to come up with a really catchy name, though. <laughs> for, for my t-shirt idea. We got two t-shirt ideas. This yeah. has been uh, one of the best uh, episodes ever. I, I got t-shirt oh, ideas, hard. startup ideas. We're just, you know. I, wow. I, I always enjoy uh, chatting with you. And what your audience doesn't hear is the 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 pre-conversation, um, uh, which is, we, you know, next time uh, you should just record from the beginning. <laughs> and then and, and pull some of that content into the into the actual podcast yeah. um, because I've enjoyed uh, you know all four of our conversations the <laughs> the two recorded ones and the two uh, <laughs> the not recorded yeah, yeah dad dad has also heard my not radio voice which usually just sounds like I'm about to fall asleep so he he, <laughs> he knows the difference so Dan it's it's an absolute pleasure as always. Um, you have to come back on again, maybe, maybe, uh, around holiday time. We can, we can, I, do I welcome again. that. Um, welcome so let me, let me, uh, let you give one more shout out to everyone with where you're at, where they can find you. And then I, one of our four conversations was that you're getting on, getting on a very long plane ride. After, yeah. after this, you're getting ready to go to sleep. That's why it came on. You're just going to get you right to sleep. So yeah. uh, good luck, yeah. safe travels, and uh, let everyone know where they can find you, and then we'll sign off. Well, it may not be much of a surprise, but uh, someone with my uh, background, I, I'm not on social media anywhere. <laughs> I don't do LinkedIn. I don't do Twitter. I don't. Well, actually, I, I did create a, a Twitter account just for research purposes. And I, if you're anyone's interested, I, I wrote a blog post uh, predicting that more than eighty percent of all their accounts are likely bots. So wow. that's a, yeah, that's that's a pretty controversial one. But I, I have sure. the evidence. I think you're to gonna support. get. You see, Dan, I love you, man. You're already working on VC funding from Elon. You're getting <laughs> in there, and you're gonna be like Elon. I got an idea for how to stop oh. all of this trap. Like how to get all oh, these yeah. bots off. Where. If, wow, if uh, Twitter or Elon together. or any, or if Twitter, or Elon, or any social media company want to know the truth about their bot traffic, they should be contacting F5. No <laughs> doubt in my mind. Just real quick, we went in line at a social media company, and ninety nine percent of all their traffic was automated. Yes, you told um, us that story. You got to check yeah. out check out that first episode, everyone. Super, yeah. super insightful. Yeah. So you you can't really find me on social media, but uh, F5 yeah, F5 dot com. If you go there, you can uh, if you want to, to to hear more or get in touch with me, you can just uh, go through F5. All right, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much. Thank Take you care. so much. Have a good day. All right.